So I already showed you that slide about deeper, higher, uh, deeper, wider, higher. And uh, so today we're going to start with climbing higher. And a subtitle for that is the Beatitudes make for a better world. And of course, as we sit in the midst of hearing uh, two wars currently going on between Russia and Ukraine and between the Palestinians, specifically Hamas and Israel, uh, we need the Beatitudes, I think, more than ever. And so I think it'll help us to understand what makes for a good world where people can flourish and uh, be respectful and honor each other. So I want to begin this morning with a question. And the question I would love for you to just respond and interact with me for a couple of moments. What is a blessed life? How do you think people think about that question? What is a blessed life? What does it look like? Any ideas that you have in mind there? Okay, financial stability. Okay, all right. Pay the rent. Okay, good. All right. And I'm sure you're including food in that as well. Okay, good. What other things might come to your mind? What's that? Peaceful. Peaceful. Uh, there's not the threat of violence. There's a kind of a settled, I'm safe type thing. Okay, good. Anybody else? What's that? Freedom. Okay. Uh, not being confined uh, by other people's choices that are being put on us. That's a good one. What was I? Health. Health. Having... Uh, good health, to be able to think about uh, doing what you want to do be and your health is not holding you back from doing certain things that you'd like to do. Good. Anything else come to mind? Support of loved ones, okay. Uh, that's, that's a very important thing when you think about the ups and downs of life, uh, to have somebody there that's stable, that's able to walk with you through the hills and valleys of life. Okay, good. Anything else? Well, when you see this word blessed, sometimes it can become a very trite word, okay? So, especially in the Christian subculture, when you say, hey, how you doing? That's just a f way of saying hi, okay? A lot of times, it's not that you're going to get into a deep discussion about everything that happened in this past week, but when somebody says, hey, hi, how you doing? Um, a lot of times people will respond, blessed, blessed. Well, that's kind of Christian lingo a lot of times. It's kind of a subculture language. Um, and sometimes something will happen, and it might be the silliest things. Uh, people find one of those choice parking places wherever they go and man they go I was really blessed today the Lord opened up this opportunity for me to walk uh, a short distance to where I'm going rather than you know 20 extra feet or, or whatever that type of thing so you know when we use words when we use uh, lingo a lot of times it, be, it, it develops its own I don't even want to put it, definition. So a lot of times within the Christian subculture, to be blessed means to be things like fortunate, happy, well-off, those type of things. Um, and then we get kind of 
you know, very, how do I want to put this, kind of sickening sweet about it. Hey, I'm too blessed to be stressed. You know, those type of things. Okay, let's stop with the lingo, right? Let's kind of dive deeper into this. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the word blessed is used quite often in the scriptures. So here's a couple of them. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked. Or how about Psalm 33, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. James, chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Titus, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's found all over the scripture, okay? But you almost have to determine what it means from the context in which it sits. Now, where do we get the term beatitude? Well, that's actually a Latin word for blessing. So beatitude, blessing, it's basically saying the same thing. So we're going to go on a, a mountain climbing adventure in this series, and in order for us to get an understanding of what the Beatitudes are trying to communicate to us, we need to set up a blessed life understanding by setting up a base camp. How many of you have ever gone backpacking or um, not necessarily mountain climbing, but you've gone camping where You've kind of found a spot, that's where you put up a tent, or it's base, it's your base spot, okay? So, gosh, this goes back a long ways. Back in 1979, there were four other guys on my floor uh, while I was attending Moody Bible Institute that decided to go out to Estes Park, Colorado, for uh, eight days, and uh, we set up a base camp. And then we went out and we backpacked and stuff. And so this was at the end of May. And uh, I was actually very surprised by how much snow was still uh, in some of those areas there. I mean, up toward the top, uh, some of the snow was still kind of up to your hips. And this is at the end of May. But we had a very good time as we just kind of saw some of the most beautiful areas of uh, this national park. Um, but we always set up a base camp, and that was where we'd come back and where we'd cook food and, and those type of things. And a base camp, in many respects, is what prepares you um, to go out and to observe. And so what is the best way to scale a mountain or to climb a monument of some sort? Well, those that are really taking on adventurous climbs, whether it's Mount Everest or something similar, um, they have to do a little bit of reconnaissance, don't they? They have to kind of see what's the best way to go up. They have to kind of see where they're going to have to stop, where they're going to have to find places to rest, all that type of thing, okay? So for a, a couple of moments, I will do a little bit of base camp reconnaissance in order for us to understand this first beatitude. And here they are. There's several of them. In the Gospel of Matthew, the theme, the kingdom of heaven, is quite, quite prominent. And you'll find in chapter 13 of 
uh, Matthew's Gospel, that there's a series of parables that Jesus gives that says something like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then has a couple of comparisons to it, right? Okay. So we always have to kind of keep in mind Matthew's overall theme in the gospel, if we're going to understand what the Beatitudes are about. And that's why he begins, I think, with this first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the other gospel writers will use the term the kingdom of God, but basically it's the same thing. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are kind of like synonyms, but it is the idea of uh, a kingdom where God is bringing about his dream for humanity. It's his idea of ruling the world uh, so that people within it can uh, flourish and I actually did come across a translation that translated the word for uh, blessed as flourishing, and it has that component in it. How do we flourish within God's kingdom? Now, don't let the term the kingdom of heaven throw you off a little bit, because when we think of heaven a lot of times within the Christian subculture is we think out there, right? Heaven is out there. It's a place we go to after we pass on from this life. The idea is more prominent with this definition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer, okay? It's this idea of the way God is ruling is how we want this earth to work as well. Now, the thing that's important in this idea of the kingdom of heaven, is it's not just God. It is a kingdom. I dropped the G. The kingdom involves kingdom. In other words, it's a web of relationships. It's this idea of what God is doing within this web of relationships so that we can see his rule come about on earth. The next thing is there's a connection to Moses. Now, this gets a little bit deep, but what you'll find is that the Sermon on the Mount is a repetition of what Moses did on Mount Sinai. So if you remember the story of coming out of Egypt, they camp at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up in the mountain. He meets with God. God gives to him what is called the Mosaic Covenant. The core of that is the Ten Commandments. Moses comes back down off the mountain and he teaches the people how to live a blessed life as they are heading into the promised land. If you take the life of Moses and you take the life of Jesus, Jesus very intentionally is mimicking a lot of the same things that happened in the life of Moses. And Matthew records this in such a way to help us to see that Jesus is the new Moses, giving us a new law giving to us a new way to flourish within life. So why does he give this sermon on the mount? It's very intentional. The mount is to represent what Moses did way back, and this is a reinitiation of how God is going to rule in the world through the new Moses, Jesus himself. Now, I said that there's differences between Luke's account and Matthew's account, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain, P-L-A-I-N, rather than the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of the same teachings, but 
a different setting. Why? Because Moses is at the heart of the way Matthew is presenting this. Number three, there is definitely a connection to human flourishing here. Jesus is summoning uh, the whole human race to a type of freedom that is part of the grand story of God's creation. You know, there is a tension in the human story, and it comes because humans fail both in their love for God and their love for their neighbor. And so Jesus is calling his people back and understanding that the only way for humanity to flourish is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the intended audience is very important. A counterintuitive announcement of good news to all the wrong people. So I read for you that uh, quote out of um, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor's book. The intended audience here is not Christian to other Christians at this point in time. The audience at this point is Jesus as a Jew is talking to other Jews. And he's giving insight into the Torah law. So later in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, he's going to clarify the intention of what God gave and why God gave it. And it goes much deeper than just kind of the external observation of the Torah. So the Beatitudes are to kind of set us in the right direction. And the sermon as a whole serves as kind of a compass, if you will, to allow us to ask this very important human question. How can we experience true human flourishing? How can we experience true human flourishing? So the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like a compass. Now, one last misnomer about the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to read all, five, uh, all three chapters of Matthew 5 through 7, you would go, man, there's a lot in there. More than likely, Jesus didn't give this all at one time. Um, this is not so much a sermon, but as a series of teachings that Matthew has put together. And as he has done that, what he is doing is he's allowing this to be kind of a multifaceted gem that as you look at it, you can see it from different directions, and the teachings of Jesus then become kind of the base point for discipleship. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to begin there. But the Beatitudes, while connected to human flourishing is a series of teachings that has a lot of different interpretive options. What I mean by that is, take a look here. What if you're trying to navigate the Beatitudes? Is Jesus talking about the physical poor in spirit? Or is he talking about a psychological state? Is he talking about an emotional state? that the people are in, or is he talking about a spiritual principle? Well, as a compass has four directions, north, south, east, west, my suggestion is, rather than just choosing one and saying this is what Jesus intended, is to see that this multifaceted gem of the 
Beatitudes can be looked at from different perspectives. So when you were to scale a mountain, climb uh, a mountain of some sort, if you stop and look around, you will see different things depending upon which direction you're looking. Not just looking up, you can look to the east or to the west or to the south, and you can see other things as you climb. I think that's a good, important principle to keep in mind, that each of the Beatitudes, some of them have physical components to it, some of them psychological, some emotional, and some spiritual. And some of them have multi-dimensions to it. And if we can think of it in those terms, Jesus is painting a picture for us of what human flourishing looks like that becomes good news to all people everywhere because everyone fits somewhere within this picture. I guess the thing to keep in mind is Jesus is not putting out a set of standards that he expects everyone to uh, live out perfectly. Rather, he's giving to us a vision that allows us to see from a different perspective than the way maybe other kingdoms in which we live uh, tell us who the heroes are. If you hadn't noticed already when you watched the Sermon on the Mount video, Jesus seems to be choosing all the wrong kind of people for special commendation here. These are not heroes of a spiritual elite. These are not necessarily men and women with impeccable credentials, morally, spiritually, or humanly. And these are not requirements to gain God's approval by any means. They're not hoops to jump through. And they're not transactional in nature. The Beatitudes are not a bait and switch, but rather a vision for how God sees his world and how he would like his world to operate. Heaven is where God rules rather than where the kings of the earth take their toll upon their subjects. And I think that's what brings us now to blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I think this has multiple angles to it. Is there a physical element to this? Yes. Luke translates this particular beatitude as blessed are the poor. Doesn't include in spirit. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first century was a tough world to live in. You had those on the top, no middle class to speak of, and you had the poor. Basically those that were scraping by to make it. And so, be blessed are the poor is Luke's emphasis because Luke is really concerned about the poor in society. Now Matthew, because he is a Jew writing to Jews, and presenting Jesus as the new Moses is going to say in spirit because it has a religious element or spiritual element to it as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that the religious establishment look down upon. So you can take it either way. There are people in this world that are crushed by economic injustice. Blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the promise that someday the world will be put to rights. Does that make sense? Okay, that someday God is going to reverse this unjust system that we often live in. But 
the blessing upon those who are poor in spirit is also in a world where those that are in power, in the case of the first century, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, would often look down and criticize and demean those that weren't as spiritual as they were, okay? That goes on a lot, even within Christianity today, doesn't it? You have different people that will set up their standard of what they think the Bible is teaching. Remember, the Bible doesn't say anything. It only is applicable as you interpret it. So when you then interpret it and you come up with a different way of interpreting it than someone else, there is a competition that often takes place where one group, feeling they're better than, looks down upon others. And all you got to do is, is look on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and you'll see this go on all the time. We basically rip and tear uh, brothers and sisters in the faith apart. But what does it mean that God sees that, uh, those that are poor in spirit? Well, it might be something psychological or emotional as well. Have you ever felt so wrung out? Have you ever felt so defeated? Have you ever felt that you've been crushed so much within your soul and spirit that you can't take another step, right? And when you find yourself in those places, the first beatitude is saying, fortunate are you, because there is a God that sees that. There's a God that understands that. There's a God that sends his son into the world to help lift those loads. Jesus would say in the same gospel in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you because I will give you rest. Okay? So as you read the Beatitudes, you might find that you're in a place where you know, physically, by physically, I also mean economically, you're going, how am I going to make ends meet, right? There's just not enough paycheck at the end of the day, right? And so you begin to see God sees that, and he's concerned about those that are under economic pressure. Or maybe you're psychologically or emotionally wrung out, and you need to be kind of rejuvenated and revived and helped uh, to get through this uh, depressive time. Um, you know, those issues around us all the time. Or maybe, just spiritually, I don't feel as close to God, and I'm going kind of through a desert right now. So it, all these things can be applied in a variety of ways. Well, here's how I think I want to apply it for today, all right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I think the first observation is this. Blessed are those that are kind of criticized and cut down all the time. The poor in spirit are those about whom no one has anything good to say. There are certain sections of society that always seems to take the brunt of criticism in this world. And you know some of the groups. And it's not right, and it's not fair. Secondly, the poor in spirit are those who find their spirit crushed by the systems of power and oppression. I find it interesting that this set of Beatitudes is found in a gospel 
where Matthew is a, what, tax collector. That was his job. And what did he do? He extracted all kinds of money from people, right? And often that left them with, you know, the inability to take care of their family and put food on the table. So the poor in spirit can represent those. Number three, the poor in spirit are those who have to cast themselves upon God's grace. It's interesting that as you read through the Gospels, there are individuals that come to a point where the only thing that they can do is just kind of lay themselves down before God, right? And just say, there's nothing in my hands I bring, basically. I come to you as I am, and I need you to meet me where I'm at, and I need you to help me. And finally, the poor in spirit do have a characteristic that I think is being highlighted in this first beatitude. They have a humility about them that's characteristic of what kingdom life looks like. You know, pride always goes before a fall, the book of Proverbs tells us. And I am always amazed at how prideful religious people can get. They think they've got it all figured out, right? And because they have it all figured out, if you don't accept how they look at something, then you're stupid. Or if you have a different interpretation of something, you can be ostracized, maybe even blamed or scapegoated or whatever it may be. Often those who are poor in spirit are those who have doubts, who have questions. And the only acceptance that they can find is by other people who have also been demeaned in the same way. Well, there's acceptance in God's kingdom. And he honors our questions. He honors our uh, doubts. And he honors the struggle. In other words, honest inquiry is allowed in the kingdom of God. Not in religions. Sometimes there's no honest inquiry allowed. You can ask whatever question you want as long as you accept our answer to it. Isn't that how religion goes a lot of times? So the kingdom of heaven belongs to the questioning and to the curious. It belongs to those who doubt because life is difficult. It belongs to those who are weary because of the ways of the world. Frederick Bruner said this, The moment we begin to look back and down on those who have not come as high or gone as far as we have in dedication, discipline, sensitivity, spirit, or intelligence, that very moment we have become rich in spirit, and so we fall out of the first beatitude. 